Recently on Sunday Extra, journalist Eleanor de Jong spoke about what it's like for her living with a severe case of bipolar. Eleanor spoke very thoughtfully about limitations she sees in the trend towards mental health awareness as something that can actually feel exclusionary for those who experience really severe conditions. It's a conversation well worth a listen, and it resonates with themes in the work of one of the world's most renowned psychiatrists, Dr Alan Francis, who's Professor and Chair Emeritus of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioural Sciences at Duke University. Dr Francis headed the task force that produced in 1994 the fourth edition of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, which is widely regarded as the authoritative text for psychiatric diagnosis. Dr Francis went on to write the book Saving Normal, an insider's revolt against out-of-control psychiatric diagnosis, DSM-5, Big Pharma and the medicalization of Ordinary Life. Dr. Francis, welcome to Sunday Extra. Uh, my pleasure. Dr. Francis, as head of the DSM-4 task force, you were involved in making decisions with big systematic consequences in the field of psychiatry and mental health. What were, as you see it now, the intended and the unintended consequences of DSM-4? Well, the road to hell is paved with harmful unintended consequences uh, hmm. along with, with good intentions. And in the case of DSM-4, we worked very, very hard not to expand the diagnostic system. We were very concerned about the overdiagnosis of people with the problems of everyday life. We were very concerned about the overmedication of people who would do much better just with time or with psychotherapy. We received 94 new diagnostic suggestions, and we accepted only two of them. And those two turned out to cause their own kinds of trouble, even though both made sense. So we expanded the diagnosis of autistic disorder, and we expanded the diagnosis of, of ADHD to a lesser degree, and actually we also expanded the diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And through, because we failed to anticipate outside powerful forces, each of these diagnoses swelled in numbers after DSM-4. DSM-5, which succeeded us, and, and was, it was published about 10 years ago, widely expanded the field of psychiatric diagnosis. So that the problem today is a cruel paradox, as, as your uh, guest participant pointed out, that we have an enormous overdiagnosis of people who are basically normal, who are now being treated with medication most of them don't need. At the same time, we we're, we're, have a terribly cruel neglect of people who are really ill. So people with psychiatric illness have been lost because the noise in the system has drowned out their signal. And in the United States, we have 650,000 people with severe mental illness who are either in jail or homeless because of a terrible lack of services to take care of the severely ill. Meanwhile, amongst the general population, one-fifth of people are taking a psychotropic medication, way more than really needed. Dr. Francis, what is overdiagnosis? How do you define it and what are its consequences? Well, there are no gold standards for any given diagnosis of exactly where to draw the boundary between uh, a mental disorder and normality. It's a kind of continuum for most of the disorders. But there's very clear evidence that what we're doing now is wild overdiagnosis of, of a number of conditions. The best example, and this has been a source of controversy for years in Australia, the best example perhaps is with attention deficit disorder. The rate of attention deficit disorder 
used to be about two or three percent. And now in, in many countries, it's, it's 10 percent or over. The rate of medication for attention deficit disorders exploded. In the U.S., something like five or six percent of kids get uh, stimulant medication for ADHD. We know this is a catastrophic mistake because of studies that have been done in almost a dozen countries with uh, many, many millions of patients that show that the best predictor of getting a diagnosis of attention deficit disorder is your birthday. For kids in the class who have who are the youngest, who have their birthday just on the side where they'll be put in the elder class, are almost twice as likely as the oldest kids in the class to get a diagnosis of ADHD. There is only one way of explaining this, and that is that we're turning immaturity into a mental disorder. That in classes which tend to be chaotic in schools, the teachers identify those kids who are most uh, active and least in control of their behavior, and those are usually the youngest kids in the class. And they turn what is basically just simple immaturity and maybe classroom chaos into a mental disorder for kids. And very often that leads to a, um, a medical diagnosis, and even more often that leads to, or too often, that leads to the prescription of medication. So overdiagnosis is where the problems of everyday life, symptoms that may be distressing, but are not of sufficient significance in terms of distress and impairment, are misdiagnosed or overdiagnosed as mental disorder, and where people who would get on fairly well, either with um, just the passage of time and maturation, or with advice, with psychotherapy, with more social support, with less stress, people who would do well without a psychiatric diagnosis get the diagnosis, are stigmatized very often, and too often receive medication that may cause much more harm than good. Do the increased rates of diagnosis and prescriptions of drugs mean at least that more people with the very severe conditions are getting the medical treatment that they genuinely need? No, it's just the opposite. The, the, the more we provide treatment to people who don't need it, the less needed attention is placed on the people who desperately do. Mm. And studies mm. in the state show that one-third of the people with severe mental illness have no access to treatment. So uh, partly because of economics, that people who have severe disorders are usually less able to access treatment because of financial reasons, partly because of uh, they may have fewer social supports to get them into treatment. The people who most need treatment are least likely to get it. The people who least treatment need treatment are the most likely to get it. We're speaking with Dr. Alan Francis, Professor and Chairman Emeritus at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioural Sciences at Duke University on Sunday Extra. And Dr. Francis, a phrase I've heard you use on a number of occasions is watchful waiting. I wonder if you could explain that concept for us. Yeah, that many people present to their uh, physician, and is, by the way, it is primary care physicians, so at least in the United States, do most of the prescribing of psychiatric drugs. 80% of psychiatric drugs are prescribed by primary care doctors, not, not by psychiatrists. A person goes to their doctor usually on the worst day of their life, and with the passage of time, with the reduction of stress, with the increase in supports, and just regression to the mean, getting back to where they are usually, most people will get better if you see them again in two weeks or a month with nothing done to help them. They just get better on their own. 
However, the tendency now is for doctors, particularly primary care doctors, to prescribe a medication as the most efficient way of getting the patient out of the office quickly. Primary care doctors are terribly stressed, have very little time to get to know their patients. And the easiest way to get a patient out of the office happy is to prescribe a psychotropic drug. Now, at, at least half of the people who take that psychotropic drug and get better from it didn't really need it. That the, uh, pr Probably the majority of people who get better after taking a psychotropic drug for the first time on a visit to a primary care doctor would have gotten better on their own. But two weeks or a month later, when you feel better, you, you're, the natural tendency is to misattribute the reason for your improvement to the medication you received rather than to the passage of time and watchful waiting. So one way that we could remarkably reduce the long-term expense, because it's very expensive to treat people with medication for years or a lifetime, we could reduce expense, we could increase well-being because the medications often cause side effects, would be to give more time for evaluation, to allow for a period of watchful waiting to see if the symptoms don't go away by themselves. And in, in this way, many people who are currently defined as having a mental disorder and are usually given medication for it would realize that they didn't have a mental disorder and would not need the medication with all the, uh, the side effects and the added expense that unnecessary medication causes as well as stigma. Given the situation that you've described, are there some cases where obviously with a close relationship with a uh, medical professional and doctor, there are benefits to reversing your ongoing habits of medication? Well, yeah, but it, it's interesting and, and, and um, difficult to do so. The mm. doctors are taught how to prescribe. That's the whole training of, of most doctors is how to prescribe. There's a, a, a really dire lack of training in how to de-prescribe. And de-prescribing requires much more skill than does prescribing. The uh, medications that um, patients receive for psychiatric symptoms, almost all of them can have um, troublesome withdrawal effects, and some of them really dangerous. The benzodiazepines are horrible medications that can have really dangerous, life-threatening withdrawal effects. And it requires a slow patient taper. It's way too easy to start a medication uh, after a 10-minute visit. It's often very hard to stop a medication once a patient has been taking it, often increasing doses over a period of years. So anyone who's been on medication listening to this program and, and hearing that maybe they didn't really need it should be very cautious about stopping and only do yes. it with very careful medical supervision. And the part of the problem is, aside from the, the occasional patient has a really dangerous um, experience, incident after with too rapid withdrawal, but part of the problem is that when people try to stop on their own and too quickly, they will often have withdrawal symptoms, and they will not be able to tell the difference between those withdrawal symptoms and the recurrence of the original problem. They'll assume that they're feeling sick because they needed the medicine and can only function well on the medicine, not realizing that the symptoms they're having may be transient related to withdrawal and that they'd be much better off with a very slow uh, process of de-prescribing, which would allow them to get off the medication at the same time, not have the troubling uh, withdrawal effects that so many of these medications can produce.
And that really goes to the broader question I was going to ask you, Dr. Francis, of once one's aware of the, the risk of over-diagnosis and over-medicalisation, what, what should consumers of mental health services, also known, as you've rightly said, as, as people experiencing distress and their loved ones, do with this information about over-diagnosis? How should we approach our engagement with uh, mental health professionals? Well, I think, well, first of all, people need to be aware of the fact that the primary care doctor's office is not usually a great place to start medication, psychiatric medication. And before you know, thinking, well, I'll just take this medicine and I'll feel better in a couple of weeks, realize that a very substantial portion of people who begin a psychiatric medication will still be on it two years, even 10 years later. So the, the, the decision to, to, to take a psychiatric medication should be seen as a very important one. And, and tragically, the people who most need it are, are the ones least likely to be offered the medication, may have the most irrational resistance to it. People with serious psychiatric problems usually do need medication. And anyone who has a, ser a severe psychiatric disorder should not listen to this program and think, oh, I must stop my medicine. Severe psychiatric problems usually do require uh, medication, often over a long period of time. But for people who began medication for milder problems, I would, I would begin thinking about the possibility of a very slow deprescribing under medical supervision. For people who are suggested, uh, recommended to have medication for problems that may not be much more severe than the average problems of everyday life, I would counsel watchful waiting and, and psychotherapy should be a step before medication for mild to moderate psychiatric problems. The psychotherapy is as effective as medication, has more enduring results and much fewer side effects than medication for the average uh, mild to moderate run-of-the-mill psychiatric symptoms. So watchful waiting and psychotherapy advice, increased support, reduced stress, all of these will work well in situations of mild to moderate problems where medication and diagnosis may not be necessary at all. And at the same time, and this is a flip side, we should, as a society, be working very hard to make it easier for people with severe psychiatric disorders to get the medication they do need and often don't receive. And just finally, Dr. Francis, where would you go to get the best mental health care in the world and why? Well, I've, I've said often that the worst place in the world to have a severe psychiatric illness is the United States. We have the uh, most neglect of the severely ill, the highest rate incarcerated, the highest rate homeless. Until recently, the best place was the city of Trieste in Italy, which had remarkable services that almost eliminated the need for inpatient hospitalization. And patients in Trieste were much healthier than patients in the United States because they received much quicker and better care. The government in Trieste shifted to a right-wing austerity government, and that city is now undergoing a retrenchment. It's no longer the best place in the world to have a mental illness. The, the best places are, are the Nordic countries, um, France and, and Germany. It used to be uh, England, but now the UK has been under austerity. And I don't know the, the uh, recent situation in Australia. My feeling about Australia was... It was spending way too much money on preventive services uh, in, in a way that uh, deprived people with severe illness with the care they needed. Dr. Alan Francis, has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for joining us on Sunday Extra. Oh, my pleasure. And, and thank you for having this program because I think it's a very important topic. It certainly is.
Dr. Alan Francis is Professor and Chairman Emeritus of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioural Sciences at Duke University. And his book, Saving Normal, has the subtitle, An Insider's Revolt Against Out-of-Control Psychiatric Diagnosis, DSM-5, Big Pharma and the Medicalisation of Ordinary Life. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.